Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. It's Thursday, November 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Pediatric hospitals are currently packed with kids coming down with respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Babies under a year old are being hospitalized at six times the rate from 2019, and overall rates for people of all ages are seven times higher. The good news is that help could be on the way. This week, Pfizer announced that a clinical trial of their maternal vaccine prevented 69% of severe cases in infants. While RSV is mainly thought of as affecting children, it does affect many older Americans and other vaccines are in the final stages of development there as well. Karen Landman, health and science reporter at Axios, joins us for what to know. Next, commercial satellites could be the next targets in space. Private networks that provide aid during wartime efforts could be under the crosshairs, as we are seeing with Ukraine and Russia. SpaceX's Starlink, which was providing internet to Ukraine after their networks were taken down, is coming under Russian scrutiny. This is prompting the Pentagon and others to think about establishing rules and norms for behavior in space. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, joins us for this and news of a planet-killer asteroid. But don't worry, they say it's not a threat, at least now. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is some of the most pressure that we have seen at our hospital in two years. And this is really something that's just not unique to Boston, but really across the country. Patient volumes are record high. Wait times are higher than expected. And we're seeing that fast, steep curve in infections, not just for RSV, but for the common cold and other seasonal viruses. Joining us now is Karen Landman, health and science reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Well, we've been hearing a lot about RSV, uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, this is the thing that's uh, been affecting uh, young kids, uh, you know, toddlers, really, babies, uh, and older adults mostly. Uh, everybody's most likely has had some type of bout with RSV. Um, but right now, you know, we're in this time the winter is approaching. There, we've been hearing a. Uh, you know, these catchy names of the triple-demic, people worried about COVID, the flu, and RSV. Um, but like as I mentioned, RSV has just been getting a lot more uh, uh, press right now. We've been learning more about it and uh, and how it's affecting, you know, kids, right? We're seeing a lot of pediatric hospitals being filled up right now. It does seem like there is some help on the horizon. Uh, we're getting some good news about possible vaccines for all this. So, Karen, help us walk through some of this. What are we learning? So what we're learning, Oscar, is that uh, this 
infection, RSV, that has been reliably a cause of huge surges in hospitalization every fall. You're right that it is a much bigger surge this fall than it has been in prior years um, for a variety of reasons, largely related to just we haven't had a lot of exposure to this among um, not nearly as much exposure among kids uh, in the past few years as we have in prior years. So there's a little less immunity, so a lot more circulation now. But, uh, reliably bad infection is about to be something that is vaccine preventable, which is huge news. People have been trying to develop a vaccine against RSV since the 60s, um, and it failed them kind of in a, in a bad way um, because of some just kind of limited understanding of how immunity works in children. Um, but we have a lot more knowledge now, and in particular, um, some knowledge that was developed in, in 2013 um, about how to basically stabilize one of the proteins on the surface of the RSV virus in a way that really enabled a huge like, rocketing forward of the science on um, RSV vaccine. So we're at a place now where probably in the next one to two years, we'll see a number of vaccines that will be able to protect both babies um, and young children and older adults against um, really severe infection from RSV, which is uh, a really big step forward. And, you know, RSV isn't sort of as recognizable. It doesn't have a sort of name recognition that flu and COVID obviously do. But it is a really important cause of hospitalizations and of deaths yeah. in these really medically vulnerable populations. So this is actually a huge big deal. Yeah, when we're talking about how much more we're seeing it. So as of October 22nd, babies under a year old are being hospitalized at rates at six times higher than they were at the same point in 2019. Overall hospitalization rate we're seeing is seven times higher for, for people of all ages. So um, the we're definitely seeing that increase there. We're hearing from Pfizer. They have a trial going right now for their vaccine, which is a, uh, a maternal vaccine. It's given to the mm-hmm. mother while they're pregnant. And then uh, this uh, is shown to be pretty effective and uh, give you know the babies at least a good bit of immunity from there. It's passing along antibodies there. That's right, Oscar. So maternal vaccination, meaning vaccinating a pregnant person during pregnancy in order to help protect the newborn, is something that we do to protect from a variety of different infections. We do it with um, uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, which people may know the vaccine by the name DTAP or TDAP. But we give that vaccine um, to pregnant folks uh, late in pregnancy, during the third trimester, same with flu vaccine and same with COVID vaccine. And that's because that um, late portion of pregnancy is a really key time for pregnant folks to transfer antibodies to their newborn prior to the time that the baby is born. And that's really one of the main ways that newborns are protected from various kinds of infections through, it's through the transfer of antibodies from the person who carried them. And so um, this vaccine that Pfizer is making and most of the other vaccines that are really close to the finish line here are vaccines that are intended to be given to the person carrying the baby before it's born in order to um, sort of have those antibodies in the baby when the baby comes out of the womb. So at the time the baby is born, they're already immune to RSV, which is really important because it is in those first few months of life that babies are most vulnerable to really severe RSV infection. As you can imagine, you know, babies in that age group, healthy babies in that age group, and, and uh, you know, babies with um, other medical conditions in that age group, 
super important to us to protect those babies. And, um, and you know, babies in that age group, we, we really do not like to see them um, get really sick because they're so medically vulnerable. So right. And, and, what, a, and what they're getting when they're when they're infected with this, they're getting terrible coughs, they're wheezing, they're 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 uh, inflamed and swollen uh, their airways. So it's a uh, it's pretty bad for the babies when they're getting it. And on the flip side of things, right? So we're talking about babies and, and maternal vaccines and all that. But on the flip side, older people, when they get this too, um, you know, it's uh, a lot of times they'll get pneumonia out of this. And um, a lot of doctors don't necessarily consider it kind of an adult uh, illness uh, because it's affecting babies more on the other end of things. But, uh, but it's also a concern for our older uh, uh, citizens as well. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. So older folks, you know, especially 70 and up, but also just sort of 60 and up um, in that age group, um, RSV is a really important cause of pneumonia in those folks, but it kind of has this uh, vibe for a lot of um, clinical folks as a baby illness or a kid issue, when actually it actually turns out it's a pretty important cause of pneumonia in those folks and really under-recognized, and they don't even really test the virus or when they do test for it and find it positive, they often don't really blame a pneumonia on it just because of this sort of mythos about RSV. But um, the reality is that a vaccine for older folks will actually prevent a lot of um, viral pneumonias in that group, which will be uh, also a huge benefit. Real quick, back to um, the maternal vaccines, because we always talk about how long protection lasts once you get vaccinated and everything. The protection from these types of things, these antibodies, usually last less than a year, but that's actually not necessarily a bad thing because it's just right in line when the babies are most uh, affected and, and vulnerable to, to RSV. That's right. And so for most babies, having a protection from RSV like this for a year after or for the, the season that follows their birth will probably be, uh, you know, it'll, be, it'll definitely be helpful you know, I hesitate to say it's good enough because it will still there will still probably be quite a bit of benefit to preventing RSV even in older kids. And for that reason, there are other vaccines that are under development. They're a little bit in the earlier stages of development that would be appropriate to give directly to a baby or a young child. And um, those would probably be at least up front. Those would be given to kids who have other issues like lung problems or heart problems that would make them more likely to develop a severe case of RSV. But you could imagine a world in which RSV vaccine would eventually become a routine vaccination of childhood. But um, we're not at a stage where we can really prognosticate much about that right now. It really depends on how other vaccine development goes. And so where are we right now? We mentioned, we talked about the Pfizer vaccine. There are other ones that are in development right now that are in clinical trials. But what we're seeing is pretty promising because we're seeing them prevent severe cases in a range of about anywhere from 70 to 85 percent, something like that. I mean, that sounds uh, you know really good, really promising. You're right. This is really promising. Um, there are, you know, at the conference where I heard these, um, the results of these uh, vaccine trials presented together, there were uh, there was one maternal vaccine, which you heard about today, it's the Pfizer vaccine. There are several other um, products to be given to babies who were born before um, the, their parent got uh, the maternal vaccine. So there are some sort of backup options for those babies. And then, as I mentioned, some other vaccines in development to be given directly to babies at some point after birth as well. Those are still, like, like I said, earlier stages. But then there are all of these really uh, promising candidates for adults as well, there's a product that GlaxoSmithKline is working on in stage three that prevented something like 83% of severe illnesses. Another right. Pfizer product, and the Johnson Johnson product, which is 
a whole huge slate of products that are being worked on. A lot of them are um, wrapping up their phase three, which is sort of the latest stage in development before a vaccine gets more um, scaled up and distributed more widely. So we're really in the late stages for a whole lot of candidates. Really exciting. That's all really good news. And hopefully it will definitely help with cold seasons as we get uh, closer and those things do get approved. Karen Landman, health and science reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me again. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. You know, these uh, satellites being used in wartime, even if they're commercial, could be considered legitimate targets for militaries. So it's it's a pretty interesting kind of Wild West situation that, that we're seeing develop here. Joining us now is Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we always love bringing you on to talk about space news. There's always so much stuff going on right now. So the latest thing that we're looking at right now is how commercial satellites are the next front in possible space wars, right? So we're looking at these satellites all over the place. They help us out with everything from GPS. They help out the military for their situational awareness. It's a really an essential part of the warfighting effort, the, the satellites that help us with our positioning and all that. And uh, we're starting to see, uh, you know, that become a focus, either defense of those satellites, targeting of satellites. We're trying to create norms around shooting things like that down. There's a lot going on there. So, Miriam, help us walk through some of it. One thing that has been particularly interesting and that's kind of driving a lot of this is the fact that Starlink is up and running. So uh, there are over 3,000 Starlink satellites in orbit right now. They are beaming internet to the ground for normal people, but they are also uh, essential to the warfighting effort in Ukraine after Russia cut off internet access to the country. And Starlink sort of stepped in to fill the void. And what's interesting about that is that now, like, these privately held satellites are an essential component in a war effort. Um, And it's not necessarily being, you know, paid for by the U.S. government or or anything like that, but you have these 
satellites that are helping Ukrainians fight the war. And you have Russia, on the other hand, that is you know, targeting these satellites with cyber attacks. And even a foreign ministry official for the country sort of said, like, you know, these uh, satellites being used in wartime, even if they're commercial, could be considered legitimate targets for militaries. So it's it's a pretty interesting kind of Wild West situation that, that we're seeing develop here. A little bit on SpaceX's Starlink you know, network of satellites. I mean, they do have a number of satellites up there. So let's say one gets shot down. It doesn't necessarily take down the whole network or anything like that. That's the thing. It's a really resilient system. So it's like one or even, you know, a, a handful of them. If they get taken out, it probably won't uh, damage the service very much. But it could really, you know, damage relations on Earth and also uh, problems in outer, it could create a lot of problems in outer space just because of the space junk created by those kinds of destructive attacks. And when it comes to the U.S. military, and I mentioned earlier, you know, they're trying to create some type of norms for um, behavior in space. You know, shooting something down, you know, could be uh, a cause for greater conflict, things like that. They're, the Pentagon, they're, they're all starting to work on certain norms like this. Yeah, I, there have been a lot of folks in the background sort of working on these issues for years and years and years, but now they're finally kind of coming to the forefront because we're seeing this move from the realm of sort of hypothetical into practical and it's interesting because we really don't have norms of behavior established when it comes to, you know, military engagement in, in space. Um, so actually creating those norms where you can point to something and say, hey, shooting down a satellite like that is not okay. Creating debris is not okay. Um, that will go a long way toward establishing treaties and creating situations where you can point to behavior and say, that wasn't all right. Here are sanctions. That kind of thing. I know the Pentagon obviously is working on this, but this is all going to be kind of the purview of the Space Force, right? The newly created branch of the military? Uh, it's also State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it is Space Force, some of it is State Department. It's really, the thing about space is it kind of stretches across departments effectively. Right. So you got a lot of different people involved in these negotiations. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting how all of this uh, progresses as we get more of these commercial satellites set in place now. And yeah, I mean, they can be easy targets. And then, uh, you know, what happens from there? Um, So we'll keep an eye out for that. I did want to talk about uh, since we were the last time, one of the last times we spoke, we were talking about the NASA DART mission, which was the, uh, you know, the thing that uh, we shot it into an asteroid, moved it off its orbit, and it was a very successful thing, uh, you know, in case of an asteroid ever coming our way. Well, uh, scientists have discovered a potential, what they call, quote unquote, a planet killer asteroid uh, that's a mile long uh, that could be within the orbit of Earth, although it's like really, really far away. But they have kind of identified a potential candidate that they call the planet killer. Yeah, so planet killer is sort of this this interesting term that's used for when an asteroid is of a certain size. So when you hit about the size of this particular asteroid that you're talking about, so about a mile, um, that's what's called a planet killer because the effects of the asteroid like hitting a planet would be felt across the planet, like across multiple continents. Um, but yeah, this asteroid it really doesn't pose a threat to Earth. Um, And if it did, it would be thousands, if not millions of years in the future. (laughs) Uh, So it's nothing to, like, 
worry about but it's right there, now. <laughs> but it's there. You know? It is there. It is there. That is true. <laughs> and uh, the, the name, I think they also need a better name for it. It's called right now 2022 AP7. As you mentioned, it doesn't post a threat to us right now. But uh, tell us a little bit more about how they actually key in on these things. You know, if you're saying it's not uh, a, really a big problem for thousands, maybe millions of years, uh, how, how are they even identifying something like this? Yeah, so it's actually a really interesting sort of story. So this asteroid was discovered as part of this big survey that was being taken at twilight because one of the best ways to find asteroids that are usually lost in sort of the glare of the sun, which are the most dangerous because you can't see them, obviously, is by searching at twilight. And you really only have 10 minute, like two 10 minute windows um, in order to search for these. So it has taken a long time to find them. Um, and there are still probably a few of these large, you know, planet killer type asteroids out there somewhere. Um, but by and large, scientists think they've found most of them. And these twilight surveys are really how they're able to do it for these kinds of asteroids that are found in this type of orbit. And I mean, there's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of things out in the the entire universe, but, um, you know, we've never really found anything, obviously, that's really on a collision course with us. As I mentioned, we we looked at that DART mission, and that was excess. It threw um, the orbit off of that thing by uh, just enough to, to really make an impact. But that thing was small. I think we said it was like the size of a washing machine or something like that. How big would something have to be uh, to move something like this uh, 2022 AP7 asteroid off its orbit? I mean, that's a good question. And I, I don't know that we have like a great answer for it yet. But because of DART, scientists are getting closer to having that kind of answer. Like the idea is basically they'll be able to scale up the technology they used for DART in order to throw something off of our path, if it is ever found, yeah. that's quite a bit bigger. So the whole point in the in this mission was to kind of figure out how to scale it up right. eventually. And, yeah, and they'll have to plan that you know well in advance. I think uh, the DART <laughs> mission was done like 11 months in advance. If it's something this huge, right, they'd have to uh, pl- uh, really plan for that. So uh, just a lot of interesting stuff. I always love the space news. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me as always. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. 
and since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.